I'm Tim Hernandez. Welcome to another edition of Words on a Wire. I'm really excited about today's guest, Dr. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, who we'll be speaking with about her new book out with Beacon Press titled, Not a Nation of Immigrants, Settler Colonialism, White Supremacy, and a History of Erasure and Exclusion. She's a widely recognized historian and research scholar, and one of my personal heroes, and I invite you to listen in on our conversation. That's coming up right now on Words on a Wire. Words on a wire. Words on a wire. Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz grew up in rural Oklahoma and she's been active in the international indigenous movement for more than four decades and is known for her lifelong commitment to national and international social justice issues. She is the recipient of the 2017 Landon Cultural Freedom Prize, and she's the author of many books, including An Indigenous People's History of the United States, which received the 2015 American Book Award. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, welcome to Words on a Wire. Thank you, Tim. Thank, thanks for having me on your show. Well, are you kidding? It's, it's an honor and a pleasure uh, to get to have you on my show and to talk with you about Talk with you again, actually. I think this is this has been a fortuitous uh, last few months for me because I get to talk to you two times. I know, yeah. Before we just did emails and texts. Yeah, it was so impersonal before, but I'm getting to know you now. Right, <laughs> one day in person. Yeah, I know. I look forward to that. I do, but um, but thank you so much. How have you been? I've been pretty well. Very very busy with the book, yeah. and uh, it's a little frustrating, you know, all on Zoom my book tour. <laughs> yeah, no, I can imagine. Um, I know, I, I know, I feel for a, a lot of the authors who are releasing books. And I know some authors tried to hold out for the first year of the pandemic, and then they kind of decided, but you actually wrote the book during the pandemic, didn't you? I did. Yeah, I did. It, it, I really felt privileged because I had a, um, a task to do a book, uh, a book contract that was due. Right. last September wow. and I had kept put, put it off I'd had it for three or four years and kept putting it off right. and I had to cancel everything I was going to do all year wow. so I had time mm -hmm. and it gave it, it allowed me to escape from the kind of craziness you know of those last days of Trump yeah. and the election and denial and I, I think I would have been too obsessed and too upset all the time, but I just, I was very disciplined. Eight hours a day, six days a week, I worked. <laughs> wow, that's, God, that's incredible. And, you know, I should, I should actually uh, correct myself and say, you didn't write it, well, we're still in the pandemic, I should say. So you wrote it during the first part of the pandemic. The first, first <laughs> the first year, right? Right. <laughs> wow. You know, that's, that's something that, you know, writers I see, as I've been interviewing, you know, uh, other authors during this last year and a half, it seems to be like either hot or cold. Like some uh, some writers have been very productive during the pandemic, in fact, and others just sort of hit a wall and kind of you know, yeah. which, which is understandable. But but in your case, it was it was the the former. You were productive. Yeah, I have my little habits. I missed. I have a private library, mechanics library. I'm a member of, and I like to go there and 
you know, other people are writing. It's quiet place. It's just, you feel a little more social, social, you know, or in a cafe, Um, but sort of stuck. You have to be isolated, but um, being forced isolated and writing, I think, I think it did take a lot of discipline for me. Uh, I, I had to work at it. It wasn't easy, but, um, and of course it's very, um, it's very frustrating to have to, uh, not to be able to run to the library and look at something, you know, uh, but I wasn't quite amazed how many archives are online. Right, yeah, I guess that's uh-huh. the upside is that you, we, we learn how many resources we actually do have online because- We really do. I, I'm that way too, you know, when I do my own research, I really like to go and, and you know, physically be in spaces, uh, you know, whether it's in the library, touching the books or, or archives, uh, or whether having to go to a location, you know, out in the field to, to be there physically. But the pandemic really, you know, just really, Put a stop to a lot of that and made us rethink our, our own process you know do you normally yeah. yeah do you normally write eight hours a day is that typical for you or well you know the kind of writer I am and it really annoys me that I'm this kind of writer I really do have to have a uh, space I I'm not one that can say okay I'm gonna write for an hour you know and because I just I always have books spread everywhere and I'm opening one and another right. And it's so time consuming. And um, so I, um, I, I generally do have, that's why it's so hard to get a book written because I need to really just be very antisocial and sure. drive pe- people away. You yeah. know, <laughs> people kept worrying about me. My friends, you know, would want to come and visit distantly outside, you know, and I said, no, stay away. <laughs> yeah. I, I get it. Yeah. yeah. Any little distraction just kind of takes you out of it and you got to be in it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, first again, you know, I, I, congratulations on this. It's a beautiful book. It's an important book, uh, you know, and I've had now a few months, almost about six months, I think, spending time with this book and I keep revisiting the book. Um, just, just as life happens, you know, as I, as I find something on the news, um, or even as I do my own writing and research, I find myself wanting to dip back into this book time and again and again. I've only had it for about six months, you know. Um, but congratulations! It's a fantastic thank you addition to your, you know, to all the wonderful books that you've given us over the years. But I wanted to ask you. Um, so the title is "Not a Nation of Immigrants: um, Settler Colonialism, White Supremacy, and a History of Erasure and Exclusion." Why did you feel, with all the, you know, with all the variations of, I guess, some of the subjects in here that you've written about before, why this specific book and why now? Yeah, it, you know, when, um, <clears throat> well, I'll give the, the sort of um, gen- genealogy of how it came about. Um, I wrote a little, um, what was called a blog back then, mm-hmm. but I just called it a rant, you know, this rant. Uh, that monthly review published they they started doing an online uh, blog right. at about 2004 or five and i started writing some you know i had uh, i had one about uh um you know just just different things that ticked me off or whatever sure. but i um i 
I wrote one called Stop Calling This a Nation of Immigrants. And I, it was just, just a rant saying, just stop it because it's settler colonialism. Immigration didn't even begin until, you know, the Irish refugees came. The first immigration law was 1884, exclusion. Why on earth is this a nation of immigrants? It erases, you know, it, it gives, um, it, it cover ups, uh, it, it covers up the, um, origins of the United States. This is settler colonial state. Right. So even when um, they make exceptions, which Biden is the first one who's done in, on the immigration page of Native Americans and enslaved Africans. Yeah. And I add Mexicans. Um, I don't consider Mexicans immigrants, you know, right. because of the, the war and the annexation of half of Mexico. Um, that it's it's still you know they're saying we these original descendants of the original founders were just immigrants you know we didn't come to kill indians and enslave people and make a bunch of money and speculate in land and take the whole continent so by the time immigrants come the whole continent is already taken you know so immigrants come to something that's already formed mm. And that's another reason not to call Mexicans immigrants, because, uh, you know, they, they know the United States very well at every level of its uh, development right. as an adversary. And, and so um, immigrants come innocently and often they're refugees from U.S. wars. In fact, U.S. creates, you know, manufactures refugees and then, you know, barely lets any of them in, you know, like the. 30-year yeah. occupation, brutal occupation, marine occupation of Haiti. That yeah. never comes into consideration. Maybe that's why it's so screwed up, you know? So we never pay for the past deeds, you know, of um, imperialism and settler colonialism and, and invasions and coups and all that. Right. Um, so this is, um, you know, really... Um, a nation, you know, if it's anything, it's a nation of, uh, of refugees after uh, refugees started, actual, actual immigrants started coming. But I, I didn't ever think about writing a book about it. And, um, oh, that, that, that uh, rant kind of went viral, what they used to call, you know, went viral I, at a very low level compared to now, how things go viral. But <laughs> there was no Facebook, you know, there was no social media yet. But it got spread around and, you know, and it got reprinted and I didn't copyright it, you know, it, it just started floating around. People would ask me about it. And so then I, you know, I published uh, an Indigenous People's History of the United States with um, Beacon Press. And I have just, um, a paragraph uh, that refers to, you know, this is not a nation of immigrants and why. And so my editor who is an immigrant from uh, India, right. uh, I think she was nine when her family came uh, and she's very dark, you know, and she's experienced a lot of, she's very aware of, you know, racism and she asked me um, if I would uh, make a book out of that, 
a small book. A small Did you book. make a, a small book? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, you this, were. <laughs> this is a funny thing about last year is that I had forgotten it was supposed to be a small book. It's even in, in my contract, you know, like 30,000 30, 30, 30, words. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. It would have been a lot easier, you know, but I was, I was trying to um, make a, you know, a substantial book Sure. Yeah. out of it. And so it was a lot more work and, so I, I kept sending her chapters, but she wasn't adding it up, you know. Wow, 45-page chapter. <laughs> she doesn't do the math. <laughs> she was it's all this pandemic mind, you know, she wasn't paying attention. And then when I finally got finished, I mean there was a lot more work to do. I gave her the word count, you know. I said it looks like it's gonna be a little longer than the indigenous people's history. <laughs> and she said, you know, this is supposed to be a small book. You said smallish. <laughs> and I saw, I started, you know, my mind started racing. How am I going to edit it down? Now everything in it seemed essential, you know, to the whole thing. Absolutely. But she loved it. So they changed, they had to change a bunch of stuff, you know, the pricing and the, right. you know, the art. I mean, it's, uh, I don't know the, how the sausage is made, you know, in publishing, but it wasn't, it wasn't just automatic. Oh, that's okay. You know? Right. Sure. Yeah. They had to reconsider yeah. what, what they were looking at. I'm sure. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this, uh, a small book. This is not, you know, <laughs> it's not, it's hefty. <laughs> yeah. It yeah. It absolutely is. Um, but absolutely everything in there is essential and vital to, to the big picture. Um, do you have an excerpt that you would uh, be willing to share with us and to the and with listeners? Yeah, I think since um, since we're in El Paso, mm -hmm. I'll read a, a brief excerpt from the title, the chapter that's titled "The Border." Um, most of your listeners uh, and you know, or even experience the event, oh. but I think it's important to remember and um, contextualize. Okay. On Sunday, August 3rd, 2019, Patrick Crucius, a 21-year-old resident of the suburban Dallas, Texas, drove 634 miles to the Walmart Supercenter at El Paso. And with a Wazer 10 rifle, a civilian version of the AK-47, shot and killed 22 people and injured 23 more targeting Mexicans. Eight Mexican citizens were among the dead while most of the others who were dead or injured were US citizens of Mexican descent. The self-identified Mexican hating murderer wrote a manifesto that he posted on a white nationalist website more than an hour before he started shooting. The four-page manifesto is titled The Inconvenient Truth, apparently referencing Al Gore's 2007 book and subsequent documentary film, An Inconvenient Truth, which warned of catastrophic climate change. Under the cover of being concerned about the environment, blaming, quote, Hispanic 
immigrants for polluting and causing overpopulation in the US. The shooter revealed his true motive, writing, this attack is a response to the Hispanic invasion of Texas. They are the instigators, not me. I am simply defending my country from cultural and ethnic replacement brought on by an invasion, unquote. This of course is what white nationalists claim to be a program of white genocide. He also expressed fear that Hispanic voters would uh, turn Texas into a Democratic Party dominated state, as well as making the United States a one party country with the Democratic Party in power. As in California, Mexican Americans make up 38% of the population in Texas. Since Crucius appeared unaware that Texas, like California, had been a state of Mexico populated entirely by Mexicans and indigenous nations until the 1820s when Anglo slavers began invading, then took over and claimed Texas as an Anglo Republic. Then in 1846-48, when the US invaded and took the Northern half of Mexico, Texas with its storm trooping Texas Rangers became an ethnically cleansed state, reducing the indigenous and Mexican peoples to minorities. The Crucius ignorance of or indifference to this fact reflects the infamous Texas public educational system in its teaching of state history. Yeah, wow. Um, <clears throat> quickly, if you're, if you're just tuning in, uh, on the radio dial there, you're listening to Words on a Wire, and that is the voice of research uh, scholar and historian Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. We are speaking with her about her latest book titled, Not a Nation of Immigrants, Settler Colonialism, White Supremacy, and a History of Erasure and Exclusion. It's a book brand new, it's out with Beacon Press. Uh, and so, yeah, um, thank you for reading that excerpt, uh, Roxanne. Um, yeah, very, uh, you know, very important to to all of us here in El Paso that story that that incident, of course, and 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 it should be important uh, to anybody who lives in this country, <laughs> you know. Um, so that occurred. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here. I'm trying to place the timing. Like about maybe a year prior to your writing of this book. Yeah. Or had you already been working on this book when that occurred? Yes, I had. I I had done. You know, I. I had done almost all the research I needed for the book. I had some things that came up I had to do, but um, that happened, you know, during the book. My previous, my book before that was um, a loaded uh, history of the Second Amendment, and right. it was just it was just um, so disturbing that while I was writing that book. Um, that uh, Las Vegas shooting took place, right. the one in um, Charlottesville, the, the Emmanuel Church, you know, the white nationalists that killed the, um, the pastor and, and the congregants, and Parkland. Well, actually, Parkland, it, my book was published in January 2018, and Parkland happened in February. So that was on everyone's minds, you know, when I was going around doing the book. But to me, it was just heartbreaking. So the same with this one. Um, 
I also tell the story of the El Centro, you know, the uh, um, 1984 El Centro um, shooting in the McDonald's. Right, there. Okay. right, right, that's right. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I kind of was curious about something because, you know, I find myself, and this is probably more of just a, a question that I personally wanted to know. Um, and since I have you here, a, a, someone who's been in this game for a lot longer than I have, you, you must have experience with this. But, you know, sometimes as I'm writing or working on a particular subject, researching a particular subject and been work, immersed in it for years, you know, I find that as time goes on, uh, you know, the, the culture shifts or the idea shifts. Um, and, and sometimes even uh, I, outright, I find outright that I, I, I've mistakenly uh, understood something that later on I realized, oh gosh, I need, I wish I could go back and revise that or, you know, or I learned some new or I acquire new information in which makes me rethink what I wrote. Does that happen to you? Because I know that sometimes your subjects overlap from books and I, always, and I yeah. was wondering that, you know, do you find that sometimes you have to revise yourself? How do you deal with that? Yeah, I, um, I do. It's mostly, um, no, I mean, there are some errors that are found in, in, in subsequent printings are, are corrected, but uh, readers are really generous at finding, you know, yeah, <laughs> finding <are>. errors <laughs> yeah. and letting you know about them. Yeah. It's, it's actually helpful, you know, because yeah. some of them are pretty obscure. Yeah. <laughs> so you want to get it right. Um, so, um, but I find additional materials like things that come out that I don't have access to when I'm writing. Right. Um, that's true of this book. I mean, at least three very important books that I wish I could have included have come out just since this went to press. Right. That I couldn't, you know, change anything except, um, you know, uh, things that would fit exactly in the same place. True, yeah. I would have to take out you know, it's just impossible. Um, and because the publication date, it looks like, uh, you know, and for the reader, well, why didn't they talk about this? You know, why, why didn't you, you know, why didn't you include this? Right, yeah. <laughs> so it's just on a subject like this, where there's a lot of uh, uh, amazing um, um, literature, you know, that, that uh, but I was just amazed at the archive we have on um, mo written mostly, I would say, by immigrants or children of immigrants themselves, right. and mostly third world. And especially, um, you know, since 1965, uh, the Heller Act that, um, that uh, opened up, uh, you know, opened up during that multicultural phase of the United States opened up to uh, uh, larger quotas, you know, for, cause it had been barred completely. It could hardly come legally to the United States for the whole 20th century up until then. And uh, um, so these children of, of these people who came, you know, during that time are writing books, memoirs, you know, stories about their own experience that are very rich. And what's really nice is that they are very aware of the native presence, mm. which in the past, most immigrants didn't have 
access to because there were there were certainly native scholars, but there were a handful. Sure. Sure. actually writing about this and they didn't get big publishers or anything but we already had you know from the mid-60s to the present you know a, a huge literature that's built up and in the public consciousness Absolutely. so you find immigrants that are coming now especially from asia africa latin america far more conscious of themselves as immigrants in stolen land you know it's very uh, that was really nice to find. And I include several of those books. A couple more have come out since. Then. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what I kind of meant by this idea of the sort of cultural dynamic shifting, or at least the consciousness shifting, you know, yeah. time. Um, and I realized, you know, having spent the last 11 years on one specific subject myself, you know, I realized that how time starts to even evolve that story or that, you know, that narrative itself. Um, I have, I can't believe we're, all, we're already up at our time here, but I wanted to ask you one more question. Um, as a historian, you know, do you, do you ever feel discouraged by the repetition of patterns? And, and do you remain hopeful that we as humans might evolve toward a more compassionate consciousness one day? Boy, it's, uh, you know, I, um, I think if I weren't a, um, a socialist, you know, with uh, for a long time that uh, uh, you really do develop this this thing that that uh, you don't quit, you know, that uh, pessimism is not pessimism is okay, but you know, it's uh, like Gramsci said, it's optimism of the spirit and pessimism of the mind that yeah. you you have to um, you have to keep fighting, you know, and um, not not uh, add up and especially coming to know uh, Native American cultures you know back in the early 70s when I was doing um, expert witness testimony you know on the Sioux Treaty and all and listening to them I the history I learned that got into indigenous people's history of the United States was really the the those voices that I was trying to channel you know from how they saw U.S. history Right. And how they've never given up mm -hmm. under the worst circumstances of genocide. They have never given up. And that is like a beacon, you know, it's as if they can keep, uh, you know, keep going and fighting and not give up. Of course, there's a lot of casualties. There's right. alcoholism, you know, there's, there's um, suicide at very high levels. I mean, there's trauma. Uh, it's not easy, but they still found a way, you know, to keep going. So I think um, that always, I always have to revert to that. It's hard during the pandemic not to, you know, just in your own mind and with Trump, you know, God, if he gets reelected, what, what am I going to do? And I, I thought, uh, I'll go check out another country. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> yeah. well, Roxanne, it's really been a pleasure and again, an honor speaking with you. It always is. And I look forward to finally getting to meet you uh, in the flesh one day, you know, soon. But right. thank you so much. And congratulations again on this wonderful new addition to all the great books you've given us. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I, I was privileged to have your book and your uh, project to include in this book. I think that really enriched a whole chapter.
Yeah, well, that's that's an honor. It makes my it makes my year, it makes my life. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Take care of yourself. Thank you too. Bye. I'd like to thank our special guest today, Dr. Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. Be sure to pick up her new book, Not a Nation of Immigrants, Settler Colonialism, White Supremacy, and a History of Erasure and Exclusion. It's an important book. It'll add some depth to your bookshelves, no doubt. Also want to thank our radio producer, Sam Casiano, and our podcast producers, Claudia Flores and Iliana Pichardo. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. That wraps it up for this edition of Words on a Wire. We'll see you next week, same time, same place, right here on KTEP 88.5 FM your NPR station for the Southwest. <laughs>